going to mention Mother's Day. I'm going to mention mothers and motherhood and the relationship we have with our mothers. That will not be adequate for some of you, and it will be too much for others, but deal with it. The fact is, as, as Matthew says, Mother's Day can be a hard holiday. This is a hard holiday for people who have recently lost their mothers. It's a hard holiday for people who would like to be mothers, but for whatever reason are unable to be. And this is a hard holiday for people who have uh, difficult relationships with their mothers. I think all of us, to some degree, will experience some dysfunction in our relationships with our mothers as time goes on, but but this is especially tough for people whose mothers perhaps are uh, entering into uh, mental decline and aren't able to relate the same way that they used to. It's a hard holiday for people who have serious unresolved conflicts with their mothers. It's, it's a hard holiday for people who know that they should be honoring their mothers but really don't want to spend any time with them or talk to them. This connects a little bit to my experience of the church when I was a teenager. See, I'd been raised in a church that was, uh, was a church where we learned a lot about what you're supposed to do. We learned a lot about the proper ways to behave. This was a church that still had enough of the remnants of that 50s era mainline Protestant vibe where what was really important was that your tie be straight and that you uh, be polite to your elders and that you learned how to hold your hymnal properly. This was I, one of my earliest memories of the church is being taught to hold a hymnal properly. Why it was really important to hold a hymnal proper, properly, I was not entirely clear, but I knew it was really important to the people around me and to my parents. And so I learned to do that. You can't rest it on your belly. You can't tilt it too much, you can't tilt it out too much, you can't block your face with it, it has to be like that, so you have to, like, if you can barely see the words, then you're doing it right. (laughs) Because this was one of these churches where, frankly, the words really weren't all that important, the theology was not all that important. Uh, This was one of these churches where, frankly, I think a lot of people stood up and said the creeds with their fingers crossed. Uh, This was a church that was interested in a lot of causes, that was interested in a lot of uh, things going on in the world, but not one where I found there was much to learn about what it meant to be rightly related to God. I experienced a lot of religion growing up, but not so much about being related to God. So when I was in high school and I was invited to a Young Life club, some of you are familiar with Young Life, it's a ministry for high school kids, I was absolutely blown away by this idea that was presented to me that what God wasn't interested in was religion and religiosity and me doing all the right stuff. What God wanted was to be in relationship with me. That that the God of the universe had made me and loved me and wanted me to be in relationship with Him. In, In a little sense, it's sort of like a mother thing. I mean, I, you know, I knew I had to honor my mother and I had to do the right things. I didn't always feel like I wanted to be in relationship with her. Well, with God, I was, the idea that I could really be in relationship was sort of a, a, a revelation. It was new. I, I thought God was somebody I was just supposed to you know, say nice things about and, and, and obey. 
But no, I really was invited to be in a relationship with God, to be rightly related to God. Now, I want to make it clear that Paul is not somebody who would say that his problem had been that he was not rightly related to God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the resurrection, talking about how, starting in verse 20, that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of them that sleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as an Adam all dies, so in Christ will all be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come. When Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. When I talked about this last week, I was criticized for not giving proper mention to the seventh Harry Potter book, where the last enemy to be destroyed is death, is in fact put on James Lily Potter's tombstone. I mentioned Metallica, I mentioned a 10th century old English poem, but I didn't mention Harry Potter. So my apologies to Harry Potter fans. I hope you'll forgive me. No, and and we, we hear, we've heard Paul talk about this so long, it, it, we can miss the fact that Paul would never have said something like this 20 years before he wrote this letter. Paul could not have imagined himself saying anything like this 20 years before he wrote this letter. If you flip back to the book of Acts, in chapter 7, it's the story of the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Stephen is a young, brash guy who's got something to say to the elders, the high priests, the leaders of the Jewish people. Stephen himself, being Jewish, tells the story about what God has done and how God raised up his servants, and then our forefathers refused to obey. He did it to Moses, did it to the prophets. And he says, guess what? Verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the Righteous One, of Jesus Messiah. And now you have betrayed and murdered Him. You who have received Torah that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed it. This did not go over well with His audience. When they heard Him say this, they were furious. And they gnashed their teeth at Him. That's your version of gnashing teeth? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I forgot. Thank you. Thank you. This was a... um, Speeches like this were good for dentistry. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
also not something that went over well with his audience, at which they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their lungs, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Now we know from Saul telling his story that eventually he goes by the name of Paul. And we know that Saul, now Paul, is astonished that he gets the privilege of being an apostle, given that he was somebody who had persecuted the church. Saul was the one leading this mission to eradicate these crazy people who were worshiping this dead Galilean carpenter. These people who claimed that they were following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Holy One of Israel, claimed that they were true followers of Yahweh, the one true God of the universe, yet they were also giving honor and glory and worship to this guy who is dead, who is supposed to be Messiah, but then the Romans pinned him up on a cross. This was not okay as far as Paul's concerned. Paul, being a good first century Jew, was zealous, zealous for the fundamental element of Jewish theology, which is monotheism. There is one God. Anything other than God is not God. Now you can read Genesis 1 as sort of a, a monotheistic manifesto. You can also read it as mocking everybody else around. Yeah, the stuff that you guys worship, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, guess what? The one true God of the universe, the one we worship, He made all of that. So you're worshiping stuff that our God made. The only God. So you're idiots. We worship the one true God who is alone worthy of worship and praise. And so when you've got this group of people that are worshiping this dead Galilean carpenter, there's a problem. And so Paul, after this, went off to Damascus which was not too far away, but far enough that he had to go on a mission to ferret out what was going on there. Probably he had heard that there were some of these folks in Damascus who also were claiming to be Jewish and claiming to worship this Jesus. He went there to fix the problem, but something happened along the way. As we know the story, Paul is on his way to Damascus and he has his Damascus Road experience, which is the first one. Everybody else gets to talk about having a Damascus Road experience. Paul couldn't really say I had a Damascus Road experience because nobody would have understood that. Paul experiences a, an encounter with the risen Christ. Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Saul would have thought of himself as being rightly related to to God. Paul did, Saul did. He, I mean, he told us. He tells us when he talks about his story. He says, you know, I, I, did, I, I followed Torah 
to the T. I made all the right sacrifices. I was zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Not only was I seeking to obey faithfully, but I wanted to make sure everybody else did too. And yet, when Paul encounters Jesus, he learns that this relationship that he thought was right was not at all. That Paul's relationship with God was off because he was not in relationship with God's Son. And Paul gets this right later on. You'll remember in Philippians, for example, in that magnificent Christ hymn in chapter 2, when Paul says that, uh, he says, you know, really, you guys in Philippi, your, your attitude should be the same one that Jesus had, which is kind of a high bar. He says, remember, Jesus being in very nature God didn't consider his equality with God something that he'd clutch on to for his own privileges. He instead made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being, found, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul, when he was Saul, when he set off for Damascus, could not have imagined that worshiping Jesus would be bringing glory to God the Father. But that's exactly what he learned. And that's exactly what he preached. That's his gospel. And so here in 1 Corinthians, when he says that Jesus has put, that God has put everything under his feet, this is one of these spots where Paul puts a little asterisk in. Lest you misunderstand, when I say everything has been put under Jesus' feet, obviously that doesn't mean God himself who is the one who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. This is not like one of those Zeus Kronos things where the the younger God uh, uh, has a coup and, and, and usurps the older one. This is not Jesus somehow winning a victory over the Father. No, this is Jesus rightly related to the Father as Stephen said, standing at his right side. The psalm that Paul's quoting here is Psalm 8. Back in Psalm 8, that's the one that's sort of a, that, that Shakespeare ripped off later on in Hamlet. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you've ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Not the avengers, just the avenger. That came later. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. Here's the Hamlet bit. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you should care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, flocks and herds, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Of course, when the psalmist is writing this, he's just thinking about what it is to be human, what it is to be the, the last and greatest of the acts of creation, after which God didn't just say it's, it is good, He said it is very good. Humanity, a ruler over the works of God's hands, yet Paul notices that there's a messianic overtone in this poem that he can't miss. The idea that God put everything under the feet of the Son of Man. This is what, by the way, is demonstrated in these windows. You may have found yourself staring at those while I was boring you. You, you, you see this on at the very top, of course. Jesus raised from the dead. You have the, the soldiers cowering as he emerges from the tomb, his enemies under his feet. That's what's on the, and there's another stained glass window that's on the cover of your bulletin of Jesus with the, the serpent under his feet. You, you also get this idea of creation paying honor in the, the lower left, at the, the, the incarnation, the activity, where you have the, the animals in, in, the, in, the main, in the manger evidently giving honor to Jesus. You have in the right side, on the right right-hand windows you have on the bottom Simeon that's the presentation of Jesus at the temple Simeon a, one of the Jewish people who was looking for Messiah to come and who did receive him and welcome him above you have the Gentiles this is the the, the magi the, the nations coming and bringing proper honor and glory to the God of Israel and so there's a sense in which Jesus fulfills this psalm beyond what even the psalmist could have imagined. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this in the second chapter. Hebrews makes a lot of this passage in talking about the fact that the Son is superior to angels. One of the things that's confusing being in here is that the people who designed this space really dug angels. And so the very biggest, most impressive window in here is this Tiffany window over here, which is St. Michael the Archangel. That's not Jesus that's St. Michael the Archangel. Don't get confused. Jesus doesn't have wings. But, what's that? Hmm? Does he have white clothes? What? Do we know? I do not know for a fact he is traditionally portrayed as such. Jesus is traditionally portrayed without wings. But we, we, we'll find out. See, the writer of Hebrews says it's not to angels that God has subjected the world the world to come, about which we're speaking. But there's a place where someone's testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you should care for him? Here's Psalm 8 again. You made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, put everything under his feet. And in putting everything under him, the writer of Hebrews says, God left nothing that is not subject to him. And right now, we don't see it that way. But we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. And in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and, all, and through whom all things exist, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So this great, glorious Lord 
is also our brother. Jesus is fully God, fully to be worshipped, and he is also fully a human being. And since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in our humanity that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels that he helps, it's Abraham's descendants. And for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, making atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who were being tempted. This is what we see in this window over here, I hope most of you can see it, where you, you see Jesus with a, with a stole, that's the, the red sash that's crossed across his body in, in uh, uh, Anglo-Catholic tradition. The priest wears a crossed stole, the bishop wears one that's straight down, deacon wears one that's, one that's sideways. But this is Jesus, the great high priest, with the holy hand grenade of Antioch in his hand. Um, which actually, before it was the holy hand grenade of Antioch, simply symbolized Jesus' power over all the earth. Um, and and he's, he's receiving honor and worship from the angels around him. And below you see all different orders of people in the church. In the center, of course, you have Mary, the mother of God. But, but you have him being worshipped by, by monks and by priests and by bishops and by metropolitans who are like presiding bishops, by saints. This is the honor and worship that Jesus is due. See, the fact is, you can have a personal relationship with your mom, but that personal relationship isn't a proper one unless you are honoring her. Right? If you're simply a buddy to your mother, but you're not honoring her, that's not a proper relationship. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus, but if you are not honoring Jesus, if you are not worshiping Jesus, giving him all the glory that he is due. If you're just thinking of him as your brother and not as your Lord, then you are missing out and you are not properly related to him. Now, being in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't just mean that we are forgiven of our sins and that we are in fellowship with him and his people doesn't just mean we know that God loves us and that His Spirit lives within us. It also means that we are giving Him all praise and glory and honor and worship as our eternal King. We can't have one without the other. It's a deadly thing when you simply have worship without a real relationship. We can't trivialize that by elevating relationship over the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe and is worthy of our worship. So to close, I'd like you to stand with me as Matthew comes up to prepare for our last song. I'd like you to stand with me. Grab those prayer books out of, your, out of the pew racks. Turn to page 93. This is one of these places, that the, the joke is that the Bible quotes the prayer book all over the place. This is one of the places where the prayer book puts a bunch of verses together and makes it into a song. This is Dignus asks the song to the Lamb. Please read with me, starting on page 93, number 18. 
splendor. What's that? Page 93, number 18. Page 93. Splendor and honor and kingly power are yours by right, O Lord our God. For you created everything that is. And by your will they were created and have their being. And yours by right, O Lamb that was slain. For with your blood you have redeemed for God from every family, language, people, and nation a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And so to him who sits upon the throne and to Christ the Lamb, be worship and praise, dominion and splendor forever and forevermore. Amen.